tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome to yet another episode of Doctors and Must with me, Dr. Masi Korir. Today we have our very first female guest. Uh, she's a pharmacist and she has many years and she has, she has an interesting story from how she was once a model to now she's in the thick of things trying to sort out Kenya's healthcare system in terms of how we access health. Um, how we access medicines, quality medicines, and we'll be talking to her. My guest is Dr. Daniela Munene. She's the Chief Executive Officer, CEO of the Pharmaceutical Society of Kenya. Welcome, Dr. Ari. Thank you very much. Okay. Interesting. You are a model. <laughs> yes, I was. You must have gone to my archives. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tell us about that. Well, I was in... Uh, second year of my pharmacy studies in, in Chiromo. And then I had I, I was working in town, as often we do, at, the students do at Nairobi University um, in our free time. And I saw posters for, what, what, did, what did it, it was called audition call. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I, my friend told me, I think you're tall enough, just go and try. I said, huh. Mm -hmm. So I, she took me and then um, they told me, okay, I meet the height. I was just barely, just at the height level. Mm -hmm. But they said, you have to lose two inches everywhere in two weeks. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because that's when the next, uh, the first heat was going to start. And so it was just for fun. I mean, I thought, wow, I've, uh, can you imagine in the middle of my biochemistry books, microbiology books, and then I have this experience of going for auditions for modeling. For me, it was just like the break I needed from books. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. How did you lose the two inches everywhere in two weeks? Seriously, like I stopped eating junk. Uh, I started running around the field at uh, at campus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started hydrating. And I, had, I think the water weight just went. <laughs> 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 because in two weeks, it, it couldn't have been significant. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, so it was like step by step, like it was a journey. I, I didn't know what to expect. So when I went back after two weeks, they said, OK, we'll put you in the first heat. Mm -hmm. I said, OK, so there is heat. And so they said, yeah, it's a process. You have to do Miss Nairobi heats. I think there were five. So every time I went and participated, mm -hmm. I would be part of the few girls that are selected to go to the next level. So at some point I thought, oh, my God, this this can be serious. Mm -hmm. So my mom asked me, do you really want to win? Mm -hmm. Because if you win, it will be disruptive. It will it will interrupt your life. Mm -hmm. It's like a full time job. And then you're in this very crazy study program. So you have to think, are you going to give it your all? Now we are near the finals. Mm -hmm. And so so I said, I think I want to win. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to um, take a break from school if I do win. So she said, okay, then I know how to pray. I said, okay, mom, she's always praying for me, whatever direction I want to go into. And then there I was, I was crowned Miss Kenya. I said, oh my God, mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. my, my jokingly, you know, hobby, break from books, this is serious. So I gave it a year. I, I took a break. Nairobi University was very kind. They gave me a, mm -hmm. a study, is it a study leave? A deferment of mm -hmm. studies. And so I traveled the world. I, I did charity work. I modeled on runway shows. I did a few um, 
um, advert- advertising uh, kind of modeling on billboards and TV and that kind of thing. And then I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How was that one year of traveling the world, modeling, if you compare it with what we are used to in med school? You know what? It's like I had been picked from a cocoon I, you know, of, of just books and full-time study. And previously in my life, I wasn't that exposed. You know, I, I was, I was, you know, I was serious about my academics. Um, and uh, I hadn't, I had never traveled. I think the farthest I had gone was Masai Mara. <laughs> <laughs> At least you had gone beyond the boundaries of Nairobi. Exactly. I know people who, once they are at viewpoint, uh-huh. to long on that viewpoint, uh-huh. the escarpment, and they're like, no, no, this is far enough. I'm going back <laughs> to Nairobi. That, you know, that was me. I mean, really, yeah, the farthest I had gone was Masai Mara. So I, um, so for me, it was just an eye opener to, first of all, a very different industry from sciences. This is all the art; it's entertainment industry, um, the beauty industry. It it was quite fascinating, and I think because I knew it's just for a time, it didn't cause me any form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my modeling agent uh, actually now telling me, the industry here is so not developed. If you really want to take you to the next level, we can organize for you. We can send you down to South Africa. That was after my one year of being Miss Kenya. So now the next logical step was now professional modeling. So they said, we'll connect you to our partners in Johannesburg, and then you, you launch your modeling career from there. So that's when I said, you know what? It, you know, it was just for a year. <laughs> I'm going back to school. And so, well, because I, the travel bug had hit me, I still took another year off, but not to model. So I, I, that's when I was faced with, or rather I realized you can actually uh, reschedule your life to your convenience. So I thought, okay, my Miss Kenya year is over. I don't want to be a professional model because that's such a huge life change. I, I would have had to move country. But let me take another year off to just uh, explore other, th- other things and travel the world for fun. And that's what I did. But then after the two years, I, I went back and finished my pharmacy studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did that experience in modeling, travel the world, um, have an influence on what you're doing now as a professional pharmacist? It did. It did, Masi. It's, it's so interesting. I, I was very, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a natural introvert. And so I had never... I had never been on a stage. I, I didn't know how to smile. I didn't know how to speak in public. So that whole experience just helped me to to come out of my shell. I'm still energized by my solitude, but I, I can hold my own on a stage, you know, in conversation. Uh, I can lead a meeting. I can lead a conference. And then, so full circle, I, w- I went into quality assurance uh, of the distribution uh, supply chain of medicines. And then now full circle, I'm in a job where I'm always dealing with people. Mm-hmm. always in interviews, always doing advocacy. I'm doing advocacy now. That's that's what it entails. A lot of events, a lot of public speaking, a lot of having to communicate an idea and change minds. So I, I thank that experience for making me comfortable because I had to learn to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think now, um, in hindsight, mm-hmm. that you made a good choice mm-hmm. proceeding to finish pharmacy and being a professional pharmacist and letting go of being a professional model yes i i made the right choice i think um, i wouldn't have known what choice 
is best had and I tried. So like I'm saying, when I was faced with the crossroads of if you really want to take this seriously, it's a life-changing decision. You leave your family, you go down to Johannesburg, you launch your career from there, next you'll go to Europe. That's when I really thought, do I really want this? And I realized not as much as I want to finish my degree in pharmacy and get into um, the scientific space and the health space. I, I've always been very much interested in, uh, in healthcare, not frontline, but something, you know, in the system, just trying to make a change in the system. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, st I'm, where, I'm where I'm supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, but I'm really thankful I, I detoured at that point. And I think even after today, if, if I get opportunities that are, you know, um, different from what I do every day, I always allow myself space to try. Um, and then somehow you always come back to your true north, you know, but you have gained experience from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy... Um, you know, doing advocacy now. And advocacy is also something I didn't know I, I, I was going to get into because I, I, I've been trained and experienced in quality assurance of the distribution of medicines. And so um, th this ad advocacy space has, it, you know, I've realized it's, it's quite powerful and that's, that's where you change minds and change laws and change regulations and shape the industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, did you always want to be a pharmacist? I mean, um, if you look at even now when results come out, mm -hmm. um, I think still very many kids want to be neurosurgeons, yes. want to be in medicine. Yes. I hardly hear anyone who wants to be a pharmacist. <laughs> so was it by default? Did you want to be a pharmacist or mm -hmm. you just found your way in pharmacy? You know, I didn't even know of of a profession called pharmacy. I don't know. You know, kids are healthy, right? I mean, and then your 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 experience of healthcare is you go to a hospital and then you go and pick the drugs. And so, it's, when I was in high school, I wasn't. It it was not something that was on the foreground. Like I know what pharmacy is all about. And so I had a talk with um, my chemistry teacher. She's she's called Miss Amisi. I mean, she was so helpful. So I told her, I just want to do anything, anything that has to do with chemistry and health. And so and so she said, you know, I think I think um, I think medicine, you know, can be one of the choices. But um, I wasn't interested in that. I, I, I really don't like frontline care, even as a pharmacist. You know, I'm not working in a pharmacy or, or a hospital. And so she said, well, you can try chemical engineering. I'm like, what is that? Oh, you can learn how to make medicines. I said, I said, wow, that sounds exciting. And then she said, but you could also try and do pharmacy. So that's when I started thinking, what is pharmacy? And then she explained. And uh, and so I thought, I need, I want to pick pharmacy because it's to do with healthcare, health of people and populations. Uh, it's not frontline. It's and then I thought I'll really use my chemistry. I really loved chemistry <laughs> in high school. I don't use it that much anymore, but it did help me to pass my exams in pharmacy. <laughs> Um, so from Form 2, I've always wanted to be a pharmacist. Prior to that career talk, I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted. I just needed guidance. Mm -hmm. I just knew I'm good in this chemistry thing. I'm into healthcare, but I don't want to be a medical doctor. I don't know. Um, and, and so I got guided, and I think, I think I'm in the right place. God brings, I guess, people to, to guide you. Um, and so for all the kids in Form 4 out there who want to get into healthcare space and they're interested in medicines and they're good in chemistry, you could try pharmacy. As Paulo Coelho says, when you want something, the universe conspires to make it happen for you. Absolutely, because actually even, you know, my a lot of my relatives, they didn't know what, what is, you want to go and 
set up shop. You know, some people mm-hmm. would ask. A chemist. Yes. And and they'd say, no, you're great. I could just go and do medicine. But I wasn't uh, pulled that way. I just knew health health related. And so I did pharmacy and I'm, you know, I'm happy. The few years, mm-hmm. I think it was two years that in medicine, we went through pharmacology. Mm-hmm. For me, it was what the most difficult courses. So when I imagine you do it for four or five years, wasn't it difficult? That was my favorite subject. Uh, in fact, in Shiramo, you do a lot of chemistry. Mm-hmm. So at that time, that was my favorite. Um, you know, when you, I think they're called the preclinical years. Mm-hmm. So at that time, you know, there's no pharmacology. It's just chemistry and other basic sciences. So chemistry was my favorite. When I switched to pharmacy school at, at, um, at the KNH, uh, mm-hmm. campus. I'm like, wow, this pharmacology. I mean, it was just, it, I, I performed best in it compared to all the other subjects. I was so engrossed. I'm like, this is it. This this is pharma. <laughs> pharmacology is pharmacy. So it's interesting that for you, the experience was the opposite. <laughs> it, it was, I think for me, it was one of the, yeah, it was, it was t- the toughest two years because we did it in second year. Then third year was the year we finished. And for so me, pathology was Greek. I'm like, why are we even being taught pathology? <laughs> why, why can't they just leave it to the people doing medicine? That was, that, it was horrible. I, I couldn't make head or tail. <laughs> but here you are. Yeah. Um, what experiences from campus do you think or do you think have shaped who you are today as a pharmacist? I don't know if I've told you before, but when I was in university, I also joined a, a music group of other other girls who were also in college with me. Uh, one was in my university, one was in KU, and two of us were in Nairobi University. And so that that was my social life. So we were we were singing. We we're in a band called Sita. Uh, so that 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 helped to just break the the burden of books. During our time, they had compressed the program. And shed off a year. So we were in school all year round. There was no long holiday. It was really crazy. So in that in that regard, just the social life of the singing group and you know and everything, that, that was good. It helped me to distress. And then the experience of being in the university and being out of home, independent, um, having come from just a, a very controlled household, eh? nothing crazy going on, uh, quite sheltered. So I, I think I grew and, you know, just that life of living in university and you're all alone, you make your own decisions. You can walk in the middle of town at midnight. You're running away from policemen. They, they were very fond of harassing university students back then. Uh, so it, I think it's an experience everybody needs to grow up, you know, get out of your parents and go and live on campus or live in a hostel independently from your parents. Um, so, so yeah. How, how was growing up like until the point where now you've reached this point of independence? Uh, I grew up in, in uh, I was born in, uh, well, I was born in Nairobi, but at that time we were living in, in Nyeri in Karatina. But uh, I think we left there when when I was under five. So most of my life I've been in Nairobi. And so I was in a day school, uh, a city council school. I used to walk to school uh, in Langata. And uh, I, I'm from a Christian home. So the Christian values, no alcohol allowed, very, very strict. Um, and, uh, you know, and then because I, I guess I was doing well in school, I was just encouraged to read and read and read. I was never encouraged to uh, do anything extra other than reading. Since if you're already getting your straight A's, why should you go and play football or play a sport or do a craft? And so I think my life was very limited those days. 
focusing on academics and focusing on books. It's great because it got me into pharmacy school. Um, but, you know, when I became, when I went to university is when I wanted now to branch out into other, into other areas. Mm-hmm. You then, they call it multi-talented, where you're good in sciences and you're good in this entertainment, lifestyle kind of things from the modeling to music. You could say so, Mercy, but seriously, I, I think un- unless you're an Einstein... <laughs> <laughs> We're all somewhere in between. There's nobody who's fully, you know, science and mathematics and terrible at the arts. I think it's a spectrum. And most of us, are, you know, the, remember the bell-shaped curve? Mm-hmm. We are all there in the middle. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what you develop. It depends on what you develop. So I'm not an Einstein for sure. I'm not like a genius in science. And so, so I'm just somewhere in the middle. So I have some artistic tendencies, maybe mostly scientific, mm-hmm. uh, humanities and, you know, like public speaking and all that. I, I think they call it, you know, social sciences or humanities. Well, we all have that. So we should give ourselves uh, room to explore. Would, would you um, encourage youngsters or parents as children who are not really sure what they want to do to try and you know, experiment, try and see. At least you had uh, supportive parents who gave, who allowed you a whole year, mm-hmm. you know, to go and do modeling. Is is it something that you think it's worthwhile? It's definitely worthwhile. I mean, it's you. You don't know. Um, why somebody has appeared on this earth. Everybody has a purpose, right? And the purpose is not so, um, like, defined into one sector only, right? And, and and it's also seasonal. You could be serving a certain purpose now in five years, uh, something else. So the best thing you can do uh, for your children, right from childhood, right from when they're in primary school, uh, is expose them to as many things as possible. Uh, you will not know which ones they'll excel in or which ones they'll take an interest in. Also, you know, don't force them. I think it's important that education is is a standard that just finish at least up to the first degree. That one should be forced, you know. <laughs> but thereafter, you know, um, just expose them and also don't um, make them feel like they ha- they are stuck in, in it forever. Once they start a certain, you know, like, like I remember my daughter started violin and then she said, it's getting too hard, you know. And um, she really wasn't interested, so I, I, I pulled her out. So I think, I think it's important. And then, remember, we're in the healthcare space. It's one of the areas where professionals are the most stressed. I'm sure you've seen mm-hmm. statistics of mm-hmm. you know depression and, and suicides. It's a high level, very Pressure. demanding. So if you have a skill that's not in your medicine or, or your pharmacy, something that completely makes you forget your everyday job, it's it's therapeutic. So I've met, I know an architect who plays drums in a band, you know. I've met a doctor who plays trumpet, you know, and has invested in that. So it it brings balance. And so I'd encourage people to expose their kids to as many areas as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is your daughter likely to take after you in the healthcare space or something totally different? (laughs) (laughs) She's very artistic. She's extremely artistic in terms of performing arts. Um, So I'm encouraging her in that you know, in music and dance. Um, but she she really loves animals. So she keeps saying she'll be a, 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 a vet a surgeon. And I'm thinking, okay, let's wait and see. I will encourage her, you know, when she gets to that point. She likes science, 
But right now she really likes the art. So, it, you know, it's hard to tell. It's, it's really hard to tell. But if she does get into the healthcare space, I know it will not be human health. It will be animal health. <laughs> <laughs> At least still part of health. Yeah. Mm. So how was your work, work experience like immediately after campus? Well, those days uh, the government would absorb all of us. Uh, so I was posted to um, Kilifi district hospital at that time um you know it was so different from everything you know i had experienced at knh or just living in nairobi um and that's when i even started to think about not health of individuals but health of populations you know just you're like wow this this there's some issues we don't experience in nairobi that people experience like malaria for instance um and so i'm like wow this this is very interesting um i at that point, that's when I realized I'm not cut out for clinical pharmacy. Uh, you know, being in the ward or dealing with patients. I learned a lot, but, you know, I working in a hospital was, was not what fitted me best. Uh, then, So then I, after internship at Kilifi, I was posted to Kericho, and I was quite happy to go. It's my hometown. It's a very beautiful <laughs> town. Oh, man, I would have stayed, but I had just gotten married. <laughs> So I trekked the corridors of Afia House, you know, begging for a transfer, which obviously I didn't get. It was not a compelling enough reason that I had just got married. Um, so the first private sector job I got, I I took it, you know, just so that I can be in Nairobi. And then that job uh, was um, a distribution manager for, for pharmaceuticals. And so I said, wow, we were not really taught about this in, in undergraduate, about supply chain management and quality assurance. And so I learned those skills on the job for five years in my first job, probably another two years in the next, you know, basically I have 15 years experience now of, mm -hmm. of distribution, um, supply chain management. And I still do it on the side even now mm -hmm. as, a, as a consultant auditor of, of distribution systems. Um, you know, so I think there are some skills you just learn on the job. I, d mm -hmm. I don't know that it's my passion, but I'm good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've worked from one distributor to the other uh, over the last 15 years, now mostly as a consultant because my my most of my time is spent at Pharmaceutical Society of Kenya uh, doing mm -hmm. advocacy and just uh, dealing with policy change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, we've had this conversations with you before. Mm -hmm on how the private sector works mm -hmm. um, with, on medicines and how the public sector, and here we are thinking KEMSA. Mm -hmm. Can we improve in the public sector? You know, I've had that conversation with so many of my colleagues huh? in government, in the regulator, PPB, my colleagues at PSK. We can improve. Oh, we can improve in the, in the public sector. You know, what happens is the private sector is subject to a lot of regulation. So they improve their systems. Why? Because you need the license to operate, you'll be shut down. So you need to be audited by the regulator. You need to be audited by the people whose medicines you're handling. So somehow there's a culture of constant change. I guess it's guided by the fact that, you know, by business reasons. But at the end of the day, they improve their quality systems. Now think about KEMSA. KEMSA, in my view, is the largest wholesaler in the country. It's exactly like where I've been working in distributors, but it's massive and it's it's talking way more medicines and serving way more, way more people. 
So how much more should it be regulated to meet the standards? So when I hear that they've been audited, you know, I saw it in, in the press, uh, I think two years back, they've been audited, the same audit that is that government does on private distributors and, you know, and they failed. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first time that they were ever audited. audited. So I've really challenged my colleagues at... Um, you know, in the regulator, in the pharmacy poisons, but go and audit the public hospitals where they store their medicines. Go and audit the hubs of Kemsa. Go and audit Kemsa itself. Because we, as a Kenyan, I don't know if I'm going to get my medicine that mm-hmm. came from a private distributor or, or from Kemsa. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's a lot of room for improvement. I can tell you that in the pharmaceutical sector, public sector, uh, supply chain management, management of drugs, there's a lot of room for improvement. So what, what is the challenge then? Because Kemsa supplies almost, not even almost, it's supposed to supply all public facilities, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have 60% of Kenyans seeking healthcare. Mm-hmm. So what are the challenges then? It's, it's governance. It's a governance issue. Just like I said, the public facilities are not in the radar for, for, re, for the regulator. To go and inspect. Already that makes the people working there sit on their laurels. They're not going to be audited. So in terms of governance and um, accountability, that needs to change. Number two, still on accountability, in the private sector, we have a responsible pharmacist. And so, and I've been the responsible pharmacist everywhere that I've worked. So I'll not let my organization do monkey business because my license is at stake. It's my reputation. It's me who will be summoned. But we don't have that. We don't have that in, you know, say in Kemsa or in the in the public hospital. So we need to bring that aspect of we have a responsible person, mm-hmm. at least for the for the supplies, uh, health products, technologies, you know, including medicines, somebody who is answerable. So even at Kemsa, we need somebody who is answerable, not a, not a CEO, mm-hmm. a superintendent pharmacist of Kemsa. And so if the medicine is of poor quality, they need to say, if when they were transported, they were exposed to high temperatures and some degradation happened, that pharmacist is responsible. So the same um, accountability structures that are enforced on private sector need to be enforced uh, on, on, on public sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a WHO report mm-hmm. that um, stated that medicines that are in, I think it was mostly Africa and other developing countries, mm-hmm. um, are either counterfeit, substance, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. or fake. Yeah. And as one of those countries in Africa, as a developing country, we are not immune to that. Yeah. How do we know or how do I know as a consumer? And we're in a country where people just walk into a chemist yeah. and, you know, say, I feel like this, like this. And somebody gives you medicine or you just yeah. go and say, I want this kind of medicine. Yeah. Am I assured that the medicine I'm picking or that I'm getting, even if it was prescribed, mm-hmm is the right medicine, its quality? Well, I, I would say, okay, it's not most of the medicines that, that are questionable, but some definitely are. You know, the figures, you know, I don't know what figures they are, but really it should be zero. Even if it's 2%, you could be the one who gets that one pack <laughs> that is substandard and then it affects you or it affects your, your family member. So it should be zero. Um, so what goes wrong? What goes wrong is um, there's the established supply chain but some pharmacies might choose to buy from a walk-in briefcase 
seller who's selling the same product at a cheaper price. So you think it's the same product, but it's really a substandard product. It could be completely counterfeit, you know, pretending to be a certain brand, yet it's not. And so, of course, these are regulatory loopholes that need to be um, to be uh, closed. And one of the things I, you know, I again, I engage as PSK CEO, I engage the regulator is, why don't you regulate the the system that manages the stocks in within the pharmacy so that you can see what was sold? If you sold 100 packets of a certain antibiotic, then you need to show that you bought those 100 packets from so-and-so. And those and so the, the the source of the medicine can be traced and um, and this is what I see in uh, in developed countries. The regulator doesn't just regulate the practitioners or the premises or the product. they actually regulate the the system, the inventory management system of that pharmacy. The mm. same way KRE would come and interrogate your financial management system is the way that the pharmacy poisons board needs to interrogate and approve the, the systems that manage the medicines so that people are not getting their medicines from questionable sources. I mean, um, you know, number two, we also have a problem of illegal outlets. So, you know, outlets that are not run by any professional, any licensed mm-hmm. professional. And so I think you have quite a number of those. We have many, Massey. We mm-hmm. have so many. <laughs> in fact, I think they outnumber, you know, the licensed ones. Um, I, you know, so... But why is this the case? Is it that the pharmacy business is a, is lucrative? Well, it depends. It depends on how you look at it. I think it's lucrative. It's very lucrative if you can buy your stuff from anywhere because you buy it cheaply. You don't have to care about the source. And then you can sell at whatever price you want. You make huge margins. But if you restrict yourself from buying the from the authorized supply chain, then your margins are small. And so these quarks, they can buy from anywhere. So they, you know, they tell each other, this is such good. I mean, I've met people. There's somebody who told me, your, your, your industry is so lucrative. That's how I got myself through university. I paid my fees all through because I, I was running a pharmacy shop. I said, in university, what were you studying? Was it pharmacy? He said, no. Was it a diploma in pharmacy? He said, no. I was just doing other things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I I ran my pharmacy somewhere in Nairobi uh, and uh, and it paid my fees all those years. I mean, these are loopholes that need to be to be closed. And, you know, but also the population also needs to be empowered and know that a licensed pharmacy is for your own safety. We've had very unfortunate cases of the Wananchi chasing away the inspectors who are shutting down the pharmacy saying, you know, because that quack has established themselves in that community. He's running pharmacy, lab, medical services, mm-hmm. and the population doesn't want him to be shut down. So there's a lot of awareness that needs to be built that it's to your own detriment if you're going to an outlet where somebody is not licensed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very multifactorial. You cannot just point the finger on, you know, the, the, the regulator. It's, it, there's a lot that needs to be done, including um, making the public aware that it's their health at stake, so they need to ask the questions. There's a system where you're supposed to SMS a certain number that's very visible on the pharmacy. It's called the health safety code. And people don't. They don't use that SMS, and it's a free SMS. So if you SMS uh, you know, to, to the pharmacy poisons board short code, you get back an SMS that this premises is Dr. Daniela Munene's premises. It's called ABC Pharmacy. And you even see my photo. So you mm-hmm. can even look to see if I'm the same person. Mm-hmm. So some 
some of these things we need Wananchi to actually also be very vigilant mm-hmm. alongside us. Mm-hmm. Um, is it that the regulator doesn't have the capacity to enforce or mm-hmm. is it that, you know, there are other things like corruption and other underhand things happening within it could be. I mean, the thing about corruption is that it's so hard to prove. So it could be. It could be part of the devil in the details there. One thing I know is that regulation is difficult. Number two, when you digitize regulation, it becomes easier, like that health safety code that I'm talking about. Number three, when you include the population as vigilantes in that regulation, it becomes easier. Uh, I don't think we are where we, we were uh, 15 years ago when I saw a study uh, uh, that there was 15,000 outlets. And in those days, there was only 3,000 licenses. So (laughs) 12,000 were just quacks. Uh, I don't think we're where we are because I've seen the regulator um, uh, setting up uh, uh, regional uh, regional teams. And so they're always there. They're always in that central region or eastern Mount Kenya region and going around and just checking because what happens also is they... They shut down some outlets, and then those people run to court and pay whatever fines, and then tomorrow they come back yeah. and, and operating uh, and operate. And that that inspector can't be on that location every week, and so you know it's 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 multifactorial. And if there's corruption, it's it's very difficult to prove. We suspect it's there, but you know you, you just don't know how these people keep opening and opening and thriving and, and thriving. Mm-hmm. But I know government as always is under-resourced. So the PPB needs more inspectors. They, I'm sure they make their case to, to the national government to assign more people. Um, they, but self now that's, that's why I'm very pro-associations because we are self-regulating. So as a pharmacist under PSK, we have a mechanism of receiving complaints, even from the public, about somebody who's not doing the right thing. or And so th- that disciplinary mechanism comes into place before s- we render the case to the Pharmacy Poisons Board now, you know, for discipline. Mm-hmm. We have a code of ethics. We, we do continuous sensitization about the risks of, you know, buying, from, uh, buying medicines from unsure sources. But that all happens under the umbrella of the association. So the quacks are not in an association. So we tell the regulator, don't bother so much with us. Free up your resources to go and close those quacks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it needs um, collaboration between the regulator and the society. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's what we do. Mm-hmm. I believe we, we've come some ways. We're not as badly off as I said, you know, 15 years ago when the, we were. There was like 10 times mm-hmm. <laughs> more quacks than, mm-hmm. than licenses. Than licenses. Okay, then generics versus branded. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a never-ending conversation. Personally, mm-hmm. when I'm getting any medicine, mm-hmm. I always look for the generic because at the end of the day, they are cheaper on the pocket. Mm-hmm. But the Kenyan mindset, people mm-hmm. out there think if it's cheap, then it's probably not the real medicine mm-hmm. or it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And it's a conversation I've always tried to tell people that generic mm-hmm. doesn't mean substandard, fake, mm-hmm. But, you know, counterfeit. You know, the pharma sector, just like any other sector, you know, it's it's all about business. And so there's marketing, you know, to expand your business. So some of these perceptions, uh, Masi, is due to unethical marketing practices where the marketing team goes and tells the, you know, the doctor or the clinician that prescribes the medicine, this is the only one you can trust. This brand is the only one you can trust. 
And as you can imagine, the people with big brands have a lot more marketing spend. And so, you know, they are really on your case. As a doctor, all you can remember is that brand. And in fact, they make you think that things, you know, that are not branded are are not safe. And that's not true. Uh, the only way we can cut down on the cost of, well, there are many ways, but one of the most effective ways on cutting down the cost of medicines which is the biggest contributor of the entire cost of healthcare? Actually, the insu- uh, my colleagues of the insurance sector are telling me that forty percent mm-hmm. of the bills mm-hmm. is usually medicine. Mm-hmm. Yet, um, if, for example, people are to move to generic, mm-hmm. then you drop that cost to ten percent. And I agree. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And so this perception needs to change. But it's not. We have to change it first from the prescribers for them to be aware that it's it's not necessarily a better quality when you prescribe a brand. Generics are just as good. You have to trust the regulator to do what they do because they're the ones that approve these manufacturers to make the generics. And so, um, so even just the practice of prescribing by brand now moves that prejudice now to the user, the client, because they see on their script it's written a certain brand. But if it was not branded, then they would be free to like at the point of getting their medicine, they'll be told there's this one, it's 3,000 shillings for a dose, and there's this one that's 300 shillings, and it's good enough. And so that's a mindset we need to shift. Number two, we, we also have to boost the local production of those medicines because, you see, in public sector, you don't have a choice. You prescribe what's there. And so, and so if we are producing more locally... Kemsa will buy more from those local manufacturers because that's what that those are the arrangements in place that they preferentially buy from the local mm-hmm. people, the local manufacturers. So if the local manufacturers can expand their basket, then the products that we find, at least in the public sector, will mostly be from from local manufacturers. So that way we can, you know, over 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 time we can reduce the cost of healthcare. In the private sector, we need to change those unethical marketing uh, practices change mindsets and really sensitize um, professionals, both doctors and pharmacists alike and and other clinicians along the way, that generics work. Because the truth is they work. They work. It's not not a counterfeit. It's not a fake. It's the exact same copy of that branded medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just for the sake of our listeners, what's the difference between a generic Mm -hmm. and branded or an original? Yes. So, well, I'll just you know, maybe go through the journey of how drugs come into the market. So the very first product that is presented for approval in a market or that is developed, okay, um, we call it the Innovator brand, all right? So so then this, uh, this it's very expensive to do research and development because you try so many molecules and they don't work and then you get one that works and you have to recoup your costs from that one that has worked. So then you present it for approval, uh, market approval, market what we call market authorization. And so you're the first ever uh, brand for that new molecule, all right? So so let's say it's paracetamol. Maybe mm-hmm. donkey years ago, you know, paracetamol was discovered. So the very first uh, branded one, we call it the innovator brand or the original brand. But what happens when you're given market authorization, you're because of copyright laws and, and intellectual property laws, you're allowed free access to the market without a competitor for several years just to recoup your costs. When that period ends, anybody can make that uh, molecule. And you know, when you're 
presenting your your product to be registered initially you have to say how you made it just so that they see it safe like giving the recipe exactly so the recipe is out there but we are stopped from copying because we all you know we all we all signatories to those trade treaties that you don't infringe intellectual property rights but when that period and sometimes it's 17 years 20 years then everybody around the world can now without research and development costs mm-hmm. now produce the same molecule so obviously then it's cheaper because you're not paying a whole army of scientists to do trial and error it's been done this is the structure of the paracetamol you go in your lab and you make it and you sell it but now it will not be called the brand of that original one so you can name yours whatever so all those that come after that original brand are called generic brands and um it's the same thing just made elsewhere mm-hmm. at lower cost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in kenya do we have rules laws guidelines mm-hmm. for the prescribers this could be the doctors or the clinical officers mm-hmm. somebody to not prescribe the trade name or the mm-hmm. brand name of medicines not not at the national level so i see this at the institutional level so you'll find prescriptions from say kenya national hospital they will write paracetamol they'll not write a brand they will write amoxiclav they'll not write a certain brand um uh in the public sector i see that a lot but in private sector because the prescribing is driven by individual consultants that have their own individual interactions with the drug companies um so unless an institution makes that uh, rule and regulation it it doesn't happen mm-hmm. at national level we are pushing we've been pushing for a long time actually psk was involved in a sort of a task force to brainstorm on how to reduce cost of medicine and that was one of the recommendations just switch to um what we call international non proprietary name inn prescribing which is really simplified as generic prescribing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this really it should it shouldn't be rocket science no, to make that happen. No. It's not rocket science. <laughs> Go to generic prescribing, boost the local manufacturing capacity, whatever it takes, whatever tax breaks they need, whatever it takes. The I don't see countries that have really reduced their the cost of 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 their healthcare depending on brands. And that's why healthcare is so expensive in the US because they are very big on brands. Mm-hmm. The biggest brands are from there and so they want to you know they want to support those uh, those companies but elsewhere um where health is a social right and you know uh, healthcare is provided you know um like there's universal healthcare there's mm-hmm. no there's no country with UHC that uh, d- that relies on original brands original. no you know there's those molecules that are so new that nobody has made a generic so for those ones we can procure and we can support this innovator companies to keep doing their R&D by buying those from them but uh, for something that's been in the market for 40 years i mean so many molecules have been there for donkey years why are, are we not in our formularies saying that we buy the generics and you know when we when we put those regulations that way even the big brands reduce their prices to us just so that they can compete because mm-hmm. they've already recouped the money they spent over the years they've recouped and they can actually manufacture at a cheaper cost so because this conversation is very key to the whole big four agenda universal healthcare coverage in Kenya are you part of this conversation because obviously it's one of the 
big drivers of the cost of health in Kenya? We are. At, at PSK, we definitely are. I represent PSK in some of those committees and task forces, but also other colleagues from the association, people who are experts in uh, health economics, supply chain management. Uh, and those, you know, Mercy, every uh, UHC is good, but the devil is in the details. I mean, there are so many little factors that... You know, that make a good initiative take so long to be realized. Huh? But we're getting there. At least we're having the right conversations. And, uh, you know, once we make a like an opinion piece or a, a policy brief, whether it's uh, taken up by government at that time or not, it's there. It's there on the desk at Afia House. It's just at Pharmacy Poisons Board. And we have made those recommendations. We have written them. We've talked about them. Um, you know. I, I believe that our work is not in vain. It will inform. It will inform policy eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in those policy-making spaces, you you know you think, oh, this is a no-brainer. But it's never a no-brainer. There are so many forces. Mm, and interests. Yes, there's somebody who will come and they'll have proof that a certain generic was found to be substandard. It did not meet the, the right standards. And so because of their own interests, then they want to um, pull down the entire argument about reliance on generics, you know? And so just sifting through all those opinions and business interests, it's difficult. It's difficult for anybody. Mm-hmm. The good thing about professional associations, you speak as professionals, not as business people, and you give your opinion. Mm-hmm. But you're not government and, you know, you're, you're not the, the policy maker. So we, let's keep advocating as KMA, NANAC, PSK, other professional associations in healthcare. Let's just keep pushing government to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what next for you? Are you going to be in PSK for a while or are you looking at something else? You know, I, <laughs> I have, I have ideas. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's because I'm in the middle of my life. There's <laughs> a lot of thinking happens. <laughs> you stay up at night and you want to change course. So one thing is, I, I feel I'm not done with what I'm doing for my my profession at PSK. So I would want to uh, continue working there for a couple more years. Um, the you know, like like I'm saying, policy change takes time. So a lot of the advocacy we've been doing, I would like to see some of those things come to fruition. For example, the recommendations of how to reduce the cost of healthcare mm-hmm. taken up by government. So I I, I want to continue. But at the same time, I have a huge interest in, um, in, in being a health coach. And so I keep thinking, okay, how do I, how do I package it? So maybe... In five years' time, I'll come back on this show and I'll be I'll be a health coach. We'll have another conversation. You know, <laughs> so I'm now looking for courses in in coaching, uh, life coaching, and and health coaching, because like, you know, as as a healthcare professional, you know that it's not enough to change somebody's behavior for their health just by telling them mm-hmm. stop smoking or take this medicine. But then many people don't take medicine as they are told. Eh? No, or you, they take the first day. Yes, they feel better. They forget about it. So how can we stop there? As, as healthcare professionals, we can't say you told the patient and that's it. You have to find a way. Take vaccine hesitancy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Just for you to, to say, I am Dr. Masi Korea, I'm telling you to take the vaccine. Somebody will not Is take it the enough? vaccine. It, it's, it, actually, it's not a health science um, agenda to change vaccine hesitancy. You need other expertise from other disciplines. A, a human being is so multifaceted, multifactorial. You, they'll they'll smile with you as a doctor. They say, "Okay, I've understood. Thank you." But they're not gonna do. And so I, I keep thinking, I I want to get into that space of changing people's health behavior, 
And I think that comes through coaching. Um, and so I'm exploring that. I'm not settled in it. I've tried here and there to coach a few people, mm-hmm. but I don't have the, the necessary skills. And so those are the skills I'm looking for now. Okay. We keep learning. We keep growing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ari, for your time and your insights on healthcare, your personal journey and your adventures all over the world being Miss Kenya. Dr. Daniela Munena is the CEO of the Pharmaceutical Society of Kenya. You've had a journey experimenting and trying to find out what else lies there. And from those experiences, she's now currently advocating for health. I know she's very passionate about reducing the cost of healthcare and making healthcare more accessible to Kenyans. So I'm sure we'll be hearing from her some more on this conversation because until we reach where UHC is supposed to take us, then this conversation continues. Thank you for your valued time. My name is Dr. Masi Korir. This is Doctors at Must. I'd like to hear from you at Dr. Masi Korir on Twitter. Let us know if you want anyone else to be on this seat, if you want to hear their journey and what they've been up to and what they're up to, something in the healthcare space. Please do tweet me, do let me know at Dr. Masi Korir. See you again next time, same place, same time on Doctors Unmasked.